Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison and we are excited to bring you the news to expose the news to all of you listeners out there in Tinseltown and the rest of the world. So Derek, why don't we start with Syria and the death of another Islamic State leader? Yes, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan announced on Sunday that Turkish intelligence operatives had found and killed the erstwhile caliph of Islam, the Islamic State, Abul Hussein Al Husseini Al Qureshi, on uh, I believe Saturday uh, was the day that this operation took place. It took place in the town of Jindras uh, in northern Syria in Aleppo province. Uh, which is under Turkish control, or at least the control of Turkey via its uh, some of its rebel proxies. Uh, this is the fourth Islamic State caliph to die, uh, apparently under uh, very similar circumstances. Later information that the Turks released to the media suggested that he blew himself up with a suicide vest, which is uh, seems to be part for the course for uh, Islamic State leaders when they're cornered. Interestingly, uh, I, I don't expect this to have any impact on Islamic State's operations, such as they are. Uh, none of the, the past two, at least. I mean, when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was was killed, that was a blow. But these last three have all been sort of anonymous guys shuffled through the the system. So I don't expect uh, the death of another one will have any significant impact. Um, but interestingly, the U.S government or an unnamed U.S. official kind of went out of their way uh, talking to to media on Monday to say that the U.S. could not confirm the death uh, of Qureshi in, in northern Syria. They actually not just not even said we're unable to confirm. They said we have no information. This is a quote from the, one of the stories. We have no information that would report this uh, or would support rather this claim, uh, which seems like you're going out of your way to kind of dismiss what Turkey was saying. And I, I got the sense that the U.S. felt like he was, uh, felt like Erdogan was was kind of engaging in some campaign uh, campaign work by claiming that this guy uh, had been killed by Turkish agents. Um, on the other hand, I suspect the U.S. may have been doing a little campaigning of its own and, and kind of issuing such a firm uh, denial that that anything had taken place, or at least anything confirmable uh, had taken place, maybe trying to undercut Erdogan a little bit. You know, polling in the, the Turkish election, as we've talked about, is is very close. So uh, a big triumphant announcement about killing a, a major terrorist leader would be, uh, could be something that, that sways votes. So um, I suspect there's a little gamesmanship going on there. But yes, another caliph dead, you know, take that uh, how you will, whatever your views on uh, Islamic State are, I suppose. How is the Islamic State these days? You, you, we, I don't hear about them much. Yeah, well, it's because they're not doing very much. I mean, they are active in Afghanistan. There was a Washington Post piece, uh, just a really silly piece, maybe a week and a half ago now, uh, based on the Discord leaks that suggested that IS was using Afghanistan to plan international terrorist attacks, and it made all these kind of scary 
statements about, you know, they've been planning attack. They plan to attack the World Cup. They've been planning to attack here. They've been planning to attack there. They haven't actually carried out any of these attacks. They haven't shown any ability to uh, do anything outside of Afghanistan. Uh, so it's really kind of a, a, a silly thing to, to even talk about, uh, certainly in the pages of, uh, you know, a, a major newspaper uh, to kind of scare, you know, threaten uh, these things are pipe up this threat from an organization that has posed no threat to anybody outside of Afghanistan. Uh, in terms of its activities in what used to be the the quote unquote caliphate, Syria and Iraq, there there've been very little. Uh, you know, they engage in kind of hit and run attacks against Syrian soldiers. There are cells that are active in Iraq. Um, the Iraqi government occasionally goes on a sweep and tries to to root these things out. You know, I don't think you can ever entirely uh, excise a group like this but um, you know they they try anyway as i said i don't expect the death of another caliph to really have any great impact on the organization i will say there you know there is some speculation in the kind of analyst community that that they're running out of people who are senior enough and go back far enough with the organization uh to fill that role now traditionally I say traditionally, it's happened now. You know, they've happened three times that they've had to uh, replace a, a dead caliph. The, the, the past couple of times, they've chosen people who have been with the group all the way back to its origins in Iraq. They were Iraqi nationals by all accounts. Uh, so you can old heads, uh, they may be running out of that cadre of, of leaders. So it, that, that could be a, a complication moving forward, but, but who knows? Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move on to Israel, Palestine, and what's going on in Gaza. Yes, just briefly, there was a, a little flurry of activity around Gaza this week. Uh, a Palestinian man, uh, allegedly with ties to Islamic Jihad, Qadr Adnan, died in Israeli custody on Tuesday. He had been on an 87-day hunger strike while in prison. There were accusations that he was mistreated by uh, his Israeli jailers um, and and you know the medical facilities. The announcement of his death prompted a number of responses, gen- a general strike across the the occupied territories, uh, protests. It also sparked a, a round, a small round of rocket fire out of Gaza. The Israelis responded to that with tank fire into Gaza, which then provoked a second larger round of rocket fire that drew airstrikes. Uh, those airstrikes late Tuesday overnight into Wednesday morning killed at least one person uh, in Gaza, wounded another five people, and then uh, there was a ceasefire that went into effect that they, uh, the Israelis negotiated with. Uh, the, uh, there's sort of an umbrella group at this point that, that handles these kind of talks that includes Hamas and includes Islamic Jihad uh, and includes other, other groups in Gaza. So they uh, negotiated a ceasefire that seemed to uh, that did take hold Wednesday morning and hasn't uh, shown any signs of uh, of faltering. One other interesting sidelight to this is that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, and his convicted terrorist turned national security minister, Inamar Ben-Gavir, got into a sniping match after the ceasefire went into effect. Ben-Gavir uh, insinuated that Netanyahu was weak for, I guess, not bombing more people in Gaza. Uh, and Netanyahu... Uh, sort of invited Ben Gvir to uh, leave the government if he doesn't like the way that Netanyahu is running things. 
which suggests they're getting a little sick of each other. That's sort of an interesting development. Uh, of course, you know, Netanyahu and Ben Gvir need each other to maintain their coalition. So I don't think uh, you're going to see an actual break. They might threaten it or, or bluster about it, but uh, it's unlikely to happen. Um, just another wrinkle in what has been a really just very stable and, and uh, excellent coalition government that, uh, that the Israelis have for themselves. It's the absolute best. And thank you so much for sponsoring American Prestige. Uh, yes, Derek- absolutely. Like Hood Party, thanks for so much. We appreciate <laughs> uh, everything you send us. Derek, let's move over now to Sudan. And just listeners, as a reminder, uh, we did a special with Josh Craze on Sudan. So if you want a larger context for uh, the crisis there, uh, please check that out. There's not much to say in terms of an update on how the fighting is going. The, the heaviest fighting continues to be in Khartoum and the other uh, cities that lie around the confluence of the, the white and blue Niles, uh, Omdurman and, and Bahri, uh, and in Darfur, of course. There have been some escalation in Darfur, which I think is alarming, uh, given that region's history. Um, the main developments this week were ceasefire-related. The two sides, the military and the rapid support forces, agreed on Sunday to extend their ongoing ceasefire for another 72 hours, so that would have put it through uh, Wednesday, they then later in the week uh, agreed, I believe on Tuesday, agreed to extend the ceasefire again from Thursday through May 11th. So we're recording this on, on Thursday. When in, you know That extension went into effect today. It will go, uh, continue for another week. Uh, they might as well extend it through the heat death of the universe at this point because nobody is abiding by the ceasefire. The fighting uh, still continues. Uh, but there, I suppose there is some value in at least pretending uh, that there is a ceasefire that you're trying to maintain. Supposedly, and this has come from a couple of different places, from the UN's envoy from South Sudan, which wants to uh, act as a potential mediator or a site for peace talks. Supposedly, uh, according to both of those sources, the uh, military and the, the RSF have agreed to engage in some sort of peace talks. They haven't scheduled any date. Um, there isn't any sense of who would participate in the peace talks, uh, who would mediate them. Uh, they could take place in Juba in South Sudan. It doesn't necessarily uh, mean the South Sudanese would be medi- mediating it, excuse me. Um, so uh, there's no details around this. It's just sort of in principle, they've agreed to negotiate. So, okay, I don't know uh, how much stock to put in that. Both sides seem to have some preconditions. They're, they're not, they have been stated, at least not publicly as far as I'm aware, before they would actually be willing to, to sit down with one another. So I, I don't think the prospects necessarily of uh, a, a peace talk, an actual peace talk, uh, a round of peace talks is, is very high at this point. Uh, what the international community mostly seems to be pushing for, continues to push for, is uh, for some adherence to the ceasefire that would at least allow for humanitarian relief to come into the areas of, of the heaviest fighting. Martin Griffiths, who's the United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, showed up in Sudan, in Port Sudan on Wednesday. Port Sudan's become sort of a, uh, a haven for displaced people uh, kind of seeking a, a, a place to get away from the fighting. Um, and it is the Sudan's main seaport. So, uh, you know, he, he turned up there, called on both sides to open corridors for aid delivery and for uh, evacuations to take place. Uh, I, I don't 
know that that achieved anything, but um, that's that's where the focus seems to be at more so than on trying to get uh, trying to organize peace talks. Uh, they can't even you know we can't even get to the point where they they stop shooting at each other long enough to get food and medicine to the people who need it. So it's really still a very critical situation. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move on to Russia and Ukraine. And um, as everyone probably knows, we released a special on the drone strike on the Kremlin. So check that out. But Derek, give us an update. Yeah, the Russians have uh, you know accused the Ukrainians and now the U.S. of being responsible for the this drone strike early Wednesday morning uh, on the Kremlin. Both Ukrainian officials and U.S. officials have denied any involvement. Um, I, I haven't seen any evidence from from the Russians, at least, to, to support the claim that the U.S. was involved. There's not much else to say in terms of an update. There, a lot of attention, as you uh, might expect in Western media and among Western commentators, is focused on the idea that this was some sort of a false flag, that the Russians staged Not this. us, though. No, we speak on behalf uh, of humanity. Not us. Not we don't us. speak I mean, on behalf of the West. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's certainly possible. I'm not saying that it, it's not. I'm still struggling with what exactly the Russians would want out of that. Uh, you know, they don't need a pretext to do any more than they're doing in Ukraine. They could just do it. They don't really need a pretext to kind of get the Russian public opinion on their side. Um, you know, that's irrelevant to some degree in, in any way. And, and, you know, for the most part, it seems like public opinion is either apathetic or on on the Russian government side for the most part. One theory that I've seen suggested is that the Russians are planning a new uh, military mobilization and they need something to get the public behind that because those have generated some pushback from people who are affected by them. So maybe this is this will serve as a pretext for a, a new mobilization. That that has some some you know interesting validity to me as a as a potential explanation but uh, you know a lot of people are just sort of running with it and the russians haven't actually called for a new mobilization yet i think maybe we could at least wait until that happens before we uh go all in with like this is why things happen so yeah that's that's all i i really have about the the drone strike other than what we talked about yesterday it is possible it was the ukrainians it's possible it was a pro-Ukraine, anti-Vladimir Putin group in Russia. It's possible. Uh, a lot of things are possible. False flag is certainly possible. Uh, I'm just not sure about why any of these groups, except maybe the partisans. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's purely speculative. But, you know, I'm not sure why uh, any of these groups would want to engage in, a, in, in an attack like this. The other thing of note, I guess, uh, the battlefield situation hasn't really changed. There's some... Uh, fighting across the Dnipro River in Kherson Oblast, where uh, speculation is still fairly heavy that this is where the Ukrainians are going to start their uh, big spring counteroffensive, if and when it ever does occur. And in Bakhmut, it's still sort of, you know, the Russians claiming minor advances, the Ukrainians claiming that they've held them off or pushed them back even a little bit, sort of back and forth there with the Ukrainians holding on to, by all accounts, a, a pretty small sliver of the city. On that front, the, the White House told reporters on Monday that, that the U.S. estimates that the Russian military has suffered 100,000 casualties over the past five months uh, in Bakhmut, 20,000 dead, uh, the rest wounded, which is just a shockingly high figure if it's true. And I don't know that there's any reason necessarily to believe that it's true. 
but it's if it's even close, that's a that's a lot of of attrition uh, to lay on uh, a battle for a single city. Um, so you know something to watch in terms of the Russians' ability to sustain any further offensives uh, if slash when they they do finally take Bakhmut. Uh, and also something to consider if you are one of these folks who believes that a new, larger mobilization is coming, it would presumably be because of, of the manpower that they've lost uh, in this this battle so far. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about this new human rights report released about Peru. Yeah, this is a new report from the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, uh, which is the uh, an agency within the Organization of American States that, that obviously focuses on human rights. They issued a new report on Wednesday concluding that Peruvian security forces likely committed very serious human rights violations in their quite heavy-handed crackdown on protesters, anti-government protesters. If you recall, back in December, you know, there were, uh, I think... Around 60 people killed uh, during protests against the new interim government uh, led by President Dina Boluarte, who, of course, rejected uh, the report's findings. Uh, the, the report from the, the commission accuses security forces of carrying out just kind of waves of extrajudic- extrajudicial executions. Uh, they refer to it with the term massacre, um, so that it may amount to a massacre. Uh, and uh, other instances of excessive force, torture, you know, beatings, things of that nature. Uh, so, you know, I don't think any, I don't know that anything's going to come of this, um, but certainly it's not going to gonna add to the luster of this interim government, which is fairly unpopular with the Peruvian people anyway. So, you know, maybe just be something to, to watch in that regard. Let's move on to a new Cold War update, and let's start with the Paraguayan election and Taiwan. New Cold War. So Paraguayan voters uh, went to the polls on Sunday. They appear to have chosen, or they did choose, uh, continuity over change. Santiago Peña, the former finance minister and member of the nominee uh, of the ruling Colorado party, uh, won the election. Uh, he had a roughly 15-point lead the last time I checked the count uh, over the top opposition candidate, Efrain Alegre. I, I haven't seen any updates on the rest of the ticket, the uh, legislative and gubernatorial results, but Colorado, by uh, again, last time I checked, seemed to be doing quite well there as well. Um, the reason that this is relevant in a new Cold War context is because Paraguay is one of the 13 countries that still has diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Allegre had suggested that if he won, he might switch recognition to Beijing. Uh, but Pena has said he'll he'll maintain ties with Taipei, at least for the foreseeable future. So I'm sure the, the Taiwanese government will be happy to hear that since they are, as I say, running out of, of allies. We really need to do an episode on China-Taiwan. I think things are are changing more rapidly than I would have predicted in terms of that relationship. So we'll keep an eye on that, our humble listeners. You can always trust us. Uh, Let's move on to the new U.S. Embassy in Tonga. This is an announcement that the Assistant U.S. Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, Daniel Crittenbrink, uh, made at a Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee meeting on Tuesday said that the State Department will open an embassy in Tonga sometime this month uh, as 
people presumably know the U.S. has already reopened uh, its embassy in the Solomon Islands that have been closed for a couple of decades. It is negotiating uh, details about opening new embassies in Kiribati, Vanuatu. Uh, we're negotiating a new, the, the Biden administration is negotiating a new uh, defense compact with uh, Papua New Guinea. So there's a lot of this kind of diplomatic stuff going on. The uh, The compact of free association states are uh, you know, having their packages renewed and, and expanded by the U.S. This is this is all part of the Cold War. It's part of building up a U.S. diplomatic and, and military to some degree presence in the South Pacific, which uh, the U.S. government views as the front line uh, of the new Cold War. So these embassies are, are, are part of a, a larger picture. And that's actually leads us pretty naturally into the next subject, which is a new NATO office in Japan. But before we get into that, um, I just want to talk for a second about uh, the NATO strategic concept that was released last June. And I, I think that um, listeners might not know, but something that NATO did for the first time in its history in the wake of the Ukraine war was that it essentially adopted the United States' position on China, which is that for the first time in its history, as far as I'm aware, the strategic concept said that China was effectively a threat to the rules-based international order, which is not as, you know, a, a term that is as popular in Europe as it is in the United States. But I think you can see... It's very see, popular here on the show. The yeah, we, I mean, we use it. That was actually the Love original it. name of the show. Um, yeah. But uh, NATO has basically said that it's going to to abide by the United States' desire to really focus on the Pacific region. And in fact, in the national security strategy of the Biden administration that was released last October, Biden, I mean, the administration in effect said that its major goal was to link together effectively the transatlantic alliance with its Indo-Pacific allies. So I think what we're seeing here is a much larger strategic shift designed to counter China's attempt to achieve regional hegemony in East Asia. So Derek, what, what's happening in Japan with NATO? NATO is going to open a liaison office in Japan. This will be, not, it's not the first time NATO has opened one of these offices, but it will be the first one of its kind in Asia. The idea is to improve coordination between NATO and uh, various partner governments in the region, uh, obviously Japan, but also Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, etc. This starts to look a, a lot like the uh, same group of countries that the U.S. is uh, aligning with in terms of uh, you know containing China, or the idea of containing China regionally. So, uh, yeah, it's very much related to NATO's decision to characterize China as a potential threat to the, the uh, international order uh, and ways to make itself more useful to the United States in a theater where NATO really has no business being. I mean, it's a North Atlantic alliance. It doesn't have anything, uh, any reason to have a presence in the Asia Pacific, but it wants to be of use to the United States. So the other NATO allies don't, uh, you know, don't get brushed off by the, uh, their big brother. Uh, this is pro, I mean, I, I, I assume this is going to inflame tensions between China and NATO. The, uh, it may push China even closer to Russia than it already is, which would, I think, be a mistake, but, you know, nobody listens to me. Um, and it's, it'll be interesting to see. I haven't seen any pushback against this, uh, from any NATO members that maybe have, still have some trepidation about kind of going full bore along with the U.S. down this road 
uh, to confrontation with China. But there are a couple, I mean, you know, France for one, uh, Emmanuel Macron has, has tried to chart a more independent course on China and he's sort of been uh, shouted down by the rest of the club. Um, so I, I can't imagine that, that there's universal support for something like this within NATO, but I, I haven't seen any internal uh, dissension about it. And let's move on to our final topic, which is Jake Sullivan's speech on the so-called Washington Consensus. Um, so w- w- the Washington Consensus uh, was essentially an approach to economics that was defined by privatization, liberalization, and so-called fiscal discipline. It really got off the ground in the 1980s and 1990s and might be viewed as kind of the international version of neoliberalism that was promoted by the United States abroad. So Derek, what did friend of the pod Sullivan have to say about the Washington consensus? So uh, he spoke last week, uh, it was, you know, an economic speech, uh, in, in the, with the, you know, having the national security advisor do, uh, an economic speech, uh, kind of suggests where this is going, but the, the idea, you know, that the Biden administration has brought forward here is that the rise of China within the, the, you know, that consensus has, and the emergence of China as the great national security threat supposedly to the United States, uh, is proof that the Washington consensus has failed on some level and needs to be rethought. Economically, it's certainly failed. I mean, I don't think there's any question globalization, you know, liberalism hasn't uh, worked out so well for most people. Uh, and that's where things like, you know, foreign policy for the middle class come from, uh, what the buy, you know, things like the, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips Act, trying to onshore, uh, manufacturing again and, you know, kind of, uh, bring job creating uh, industries back to the U.S. instead of, you know, allowing them to go all over the world. Uh, that's where this comes from, this attempt to redefine uh, the Washington consensus to mean something else. This has raised a, a, some, a fair amount of concern among U.S. allies who have their own dealings with China. Um, in particular, U.S. export controls on Chinese tech products or, or, you know, preventing countries from exporting things like semiconductors, chips, et cetera, uh, to China have have raised a lot of concern, uh, even in countries like South Korea that are sort of core parts of this new Cold War framework because they sell a lot. I mean, they export a lot of goods to China. This is a major economic driver for them. And for the U.S. to put its foot down and say, no, you're not allowed to do this anymore, it potentially... Uh, you know, raises some eyebrows about the U.S. bigfooting these other countries and and could create tension. So Sullivan's speech uh, seemed mostly to be uh, an effort to kind of assuage these concerns. He talked about the these things like export controls and other U.S. limitations as very narrowly focused. He cast them as very narrowly focused and suggested that uh, you know, they're just, we're just focusing on areas of particular concern for security issues. We're not trying to stop anybody from having relationships with China. We're not trying to stop anybody from uh, selling goods to China. We're just concerned about some very particular areas. So I think the, the administration maybe is getting some sense of uh, that there's some blowback against what it's done so far. By the way, I don't, I don't 
necessarily agree with that. A lot of the things that the administration has done seem fairly heavy handed and, and not at all tightly focused. But, you know, maybe they're feeling a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of pushback. And so they sent Sullivan to the Roosevelt Institute to kind of try to put a, a, a happier face on their policies. Thank you, Derek. And before we go, two quick things. I released uh, a paper with the new Alameda Institute, which I think our listeners will be interested in. So check them out and check out the paper. It's titled The Return of the United States. Um, It's on the rules-based order and how Ukraine helped the U.S. basically reaffirm its hegemony. Um, And also just in general, look at the Alameda Institute. And everyone, please remember to like subscribe and spread us around we really appreciate it all right derek thank you so much and we'll see you all soon bye bye bye